0: When you have a problem, Box 12 gets you answers. The violence continues. When crime hits too close to home, we want to make sure your voice is heard. We're listening and ready to confront your problems head on. How can Box 12 help you? Tell us at kptv.com.
1: Thank you for listening to BRC and Friends. This is another episode that is done in partnership between First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto and BRC and Friends. In this series, you're going to be hearing from candidates for the Palo Alto City Council. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. My name is Bruce reyes Chow. And this is BRC and Friends. Each episode, I chat with activists, artists, academics, and adventurers to discuss politics, faith, pop culture, technology, and as you will discover, pretty much everything else that pops into our heads. This is basically an excuse for me to hang out with friends and colleagues and riff about things that matter. Welcome to BRC and Friends. Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto webinars. It's a place where we engage the hearts and minds of academics, artists, authors, and community leaders. Uh, My name is Bruce Reyes Chow, and I'm the pastor here at First Presbyterian. Today's webinar is part of a series where I'm interviewing 2020 candidates for Palo Alto City Council. Uh, In this series of interviews, I hope not only to get to know the issues that are important to each candidate, but also to get to know the person behind the politician. We'll be taking questions later, so please make sure you use the Q&A feature, and we'll get to those later in the program. Webinar will be recorded, and it's shared, as they all are, on our church YouTube channel and on Instagram TV, as well as posted as part of my podcast, BRC and Friends. Uh, Today, I'm welcoming our final uh, nine of 10 folks who said yes to us, Uh, Stephen Lee is with us today, but I have to do a disclaimer before we start because uh, my middle child, Abby is working on Stephen's campaign. So, but there is no preference. She did not slip me any questions. There was no, we are keeping this very uh, separated. Uh, But um, those who know me and my family, uh, we're always involved in campaigns and doing stuff. So no one is shocked, but I just want to make sure everybody knows that Abby is working on Stephen's campaign. All right, so let's start with this, uh, Stephen. Just tell us tell us who you are. Give us some context, background, who you are, and maybe a little bit about why you're running. But let's get, we have an hour. Uh, folks get to know you. Who Who is Stephen Lee?
2: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, let's start from the very beginning. You know, I'm a third-generation Chinese-American. My father was born in Iowa and grew up in Michigan. Um, his oh. father, so my, my paternal grandfather, came here from China to actually study engineering at MIT. So that's how my father's side um, ended up in the U.S. My mom is an immigrant herself. She's Chinese-Indonesian, so ethnically Chinese, but her family lived in Indonesia. And she came here uh, for college uh, to to become a pharmacist. Um, I am one of four siblings, Um, so I'm the second child. You know, my older brother is a U.S. Navy SEAL. I'm a corporate attorney at sony playstation uh, my little sister is a orthopedic surgery resident in boston so she's in the second of either a four or five year residency program um and then my little brother jonathan who lives up in redwood city is a uh financial analyst so we so sort you're of had... a,
1: you're a bunch of low achievers <laughs> is basically what you're telling us it's like...
2: yeah no yeah yeah i don't know what went wrong we didn't really, um, you know, my dad's an engineer and, and not, not one of us ended up being an engineer. Being so, an engineer. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was born in Seattle um, for the first couple of years of my life. I lived down in Southern California um, in a place called China Lake. It's in the middle of the Mojave Desert. My dad was working for um, Boeing at the time. Um, and then around 2000, you know, they were consolidating that military base and we ended up moving up here to the Bay Area. In 2000, um, you know, so I very much consider uh, myself growing up in the Bay Area, I grew up in West San Jose, I went to Cupertino schools like Miller Middle School and Lindbergh High School. Um, you know, I, I grew up in sort of the post 9/11 world, I was in eighth grade US history class on 911. And I just remember, you know, seeing h- how that event changed our country evocally and how we were treating our Muslim American residents while simultaneously learning about the values enshrined in our constitution and learning about our history and how we've sort of um, struggled as a country to live up to all of those ideals, right? It's sort of the struggle of, of um, forming that more perfect union. Um, but I've always been somewhat interested in, in government and, and the law Um, You know, I I view law as a way of, you know, that's how we govern ourselves interpersonally, how we decide what we're going to be doing, what we're going to be focusing on as a society to address our collective issues. Um, So after I graduated from Lindbergh High School, I went to uh, UC Davis where I majored in political science and communication. Um, Well, let me back up and say, in high school I started getting involved in local government. I, I founded the San Jose Youth Advisory Council there And we advised the San Jose City Council on issues affecting young people. And we actually convinced them to build the first teen center in West San Jose. And that was really my first taste of being involved in local government and really seeing the power of my own voice. Um, And so I tell people that I've had, you know, I I just turned 32 actually yesterday, (laughs) but I've been involved in local government since I was 15. Um, since I took chemistry honors, so that would have been 15 years old. Um, so I have, what, what is that? Is that that 17 years of, of local government experience? Wow, I can't believe I'm saying that. 17 years of local government experience starting in San Jose, and I've served on commissions pretty much every year that, uh, since then. Um, so I went to UC Davis, as I mentioned, for undergrad. I served on a human relations commission, a social services commission, and a campus city commission there. Um, was very involved. Um, then I went to Duke for law school over in North Carolina. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, having grown up in the Bay Area and having gone to school in California, I wanted to leave sort of that bubble for a couple of years and really get exposed to, to different people from different social economic backgrounds, different parts of the country, different political backgrounds. You know, I was in the same law school class as Justice Alito's son. And that was a great opportunity. It really helped reinforce my own progressive democratic views, but it exposed you know, me to, to people who, who are you know, just as meaningful and thoughtful as, as we are, but who come to, to these issues in different ways, right? And, and it taught me a lot about how we need to engage more with people who we disagree with, um, as opposed to, you know, self-isolating ourselves or defriending people who may not necessarily dis- disagree with us. Mm-hmm. So I graduated from Duke class four. Um, I'm now a product attorney at Sony PlayStation. So I helped get off um, the PlayStation 5 launch, which we are launching this year. Um, and for the last three years, you know, I've had the honor and privilege of serving on the Palo Alto Human Relations Commission, working to advise our city on ways we can make Palo Alto more welcoming, inclusive, and responsive to the needs of all members of our community as you can imagine, that involves a a wide swath of issues, whether it's gender equity, whether it's um, homelessness, whether it's um, uh, increasing funding for mental health services, whether it's teen vaping, um, you know, making our programs and facilities more accessible to special needs families. It's sort of the wide gambit of things. Um, And you know, the reason why I moved to Palo Alto, you know, when I graduated from law school, I knew I was going to end up in the Bay Area and I wanted to find a place Where I could put down roots for the long term. I didn't want to be moving around. And I like that Palo Alto sort of had that small town feel. You can kind of walk around and you'll inevitably bump into someone that you know. And I love that. Um, You know, having grown up in West San Jose, that was sort of maybe too big of a city for me, right? Where you don't really know your neighbors, you don't really know everyone going on there. So I like how small Palo Alto is, and I love how engaged people are in in all of the different issues we work on, whether it's at the school district level or um, in in the neighborhoods. I love how engaged that is. Um, And also, it just has a great school district, right? Uh, My parents worked very hard and sacrificed a lot to give me a Cupertino school district education. And I knew that I wanted to provide similar opportunities for for my future kids. Um, So I really made a deliberate choice to to put down roots in Palo Alto and, um, you know, knock on wood, I'll be here for the next, you know, 50 60 years. <laughs> so that's a
1: little right. bit about me. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, That's great. Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm, I'm new, uh, you know, I've been here for a little bit over a year, um, started at the church last April and moved really the whole family moved uh, at the end of last summer. So we're still getting used to it. And after 30 years in San Francisco, it's a, it's, <laughs> it's, it, it's probably more of a jarring transition than I really, I knew it wouldn't be the same. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I knew that. But I think it's been a little more jarring than I thought, both in good and bad ways. I mean, I think it runs a gambit. But um, I mean, you're you're you've been doing this commission work. You you're running for city council. Um, you know, it's none of it's paid. It's all on top of everything you're doing. Uh, you know, it's it. I love Paleto because it's it. Those positions are um, they're not glory positions at all, right? These are like you're getting in to wow. do the work. So, so you, you obviously love and you're committed to this, this city. So what, you know, you mentioned the small town piece, which I would agree with you. It's, it's kind of interesting being in a small town again and kind of the, the vibe of that. But what else do you love about Palo Alto? When people were say to you, you know, why, why do you love Palo Alto? Why, why are you going to commit this energy and time uh, and you, much of your life to this city? What do, you, what do you love about Palo Alto?
2: So, I mean, other than the small townness, other than the excellent schools, I love how many parks we have. There's parks everywhere, I love it. Um, And I love how vibrant our downtown is. And I love that I can actually walk. I'm in Midtown, so it's a little bit of a walk, but I love that I can actually walk or bike to, to downtown. And I just love the energy here. I love how, you know, Palo Alto is known all across the globe as the birthplace of Silicon Valley. And so we see that reflected not only in our companies, but in our people who are just so bold and innovative and courageous and are working in in their professional and private lives to address all of these different issues that we care about as a community. So I I love that entrepreneurial spirit and that that drive that people have towards making our world a better place. Um, And that in part is is one of the reasons why I'm running for city council because I wanna harness some of that energy um, at the the local government level because I feel like our government hasn't been nearly as responsive or as innovative or forward-looking as our people are in addressing some of these issues. Hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons why I love Paula. That's great. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah.
1: uh, I've, I've, I've loved, so we're kind of in the South Southern part uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's funny that um, when I first got here though, people would say like, you either go to California or you go to university and they're like people I, I was learning, people have real, like uh, preferences about like California or university, which one do you like better? And I'm like, I, I just got here and I won't ask you to pick, but it's an interesting, uh, what folks were telling me. And I've, I've really, um, like I said, enjoyed this, the small town vibe. Um, I've always been involved in politics no matter where Mm -hmm. I've been and the fact that, um, I've been here, you know, just over a year and I'm sitting down with nine of 10 candidates to just have these conversations just kind of shows that there's, true, local, accessible kind of leadership, which uh, I, I totally appreciate. And I've, and I've got to know some businesses, loving Happy Donuts is one of my happy places in, in the <laughs> world. And Cronuts, not good for you, but oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm finding my places. I, um, uh, well, but, you I'll know, say
2: that my, I, my favorite of the two is University Avenue, but primarily it's because City Hall is so close by.
1: Well, that's true.
2: Prior to COVID, <laughs> I spent so much time there and this is kind of geeky of me, but some of my friends and some council members were saying, Steven, you need to get out a bit more. (laughs) Because I would be spending most, like more time at city hall than I was like, for someone my age, as opposed to at at the bars, right? Right. (laughs) But um, I find it interesting and I find this work very, very meaningful. You know, for the longest time, I I really have have felt a a sense of calling. You know, there's sort of, um, I think JFK said it and I think, You know, there's a biblical notion that, you know, for those whom a lot is given, a lot is expected in return. And so, you know, my parents worked very hard to give me a lot of um, opportunities and privileges in my life. And I'm someone who's like, if I see something's wrong, I'm not just going to sit there and wait for someone else to do it. I'm going to step up and do the work myself to try to fix it from the inside.
1: Um, but that's, that's great. So that, that leads me to the question, like a, as an outsider, I've come in and um, have seen things that I have to figure out Is like, is this, like this is odd like there have been things that i'm like wow you know and again i'm not surprised no progressive city is as progressive as it likes to think it is and there's always pockets and all those kind of things and i'm also from san francisco so we're pretty smug about our world so i'd want to make sure i'm not like looking at it through my those eyes but but i think there are some challenges so what what would you say are our collective challenges for Palo Alto as moving forward. What are the kinds of things that you wanna address, fix, however you wanna describe it? What are those issues? Uh,
2: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I talk to people a lot about the need to get more serious about our housing crisis. And I say it uh, for a number of different reasons, right? There's, um, we have a three to one jobs to housing imbalance in Palo Alto, and we know that that's an issue. Too often though, the pro-housing discussion about why we need housing is only about, you know, in terms of creating diversity, um, in- increasing the ability of, of folks who don't live there to to actually live and afford to live here. And those are certainly important reasons why we need to do housing too. But during this campaign, I've been really trying to make the case to current residents that it's in our own self-interest and that we have a responsibility to our existing community to get serious about housing um, you know, for me, housing is so inextricably linked to many of the issues we care about as a community. So even if you or someone else doesn't con- doesn't consider themselves a pro housing advocate or doesn't know much about it, or even if they own their own home, there's a lot of reasons why all of us and why those people should care about getting serious about housing crisis. Um, I mean, let me give you some examples. You know, if we want to address racial and economic inequality. Housing is heavily tied to that. Addressing climate change, right? Um, reversing the huge traffic we have, right? One of the reasons why we have so much traffic is because we don't have housing near where the jobs are, right? And so people are commuting in from out of town and that's, that's creating more traffic. Um, you know, we have excellent school district, uh, schools in this town, right? I moved here for the schools. A lot of people moved here for the schools but we're seeing declining enrollment because young families can no longer afford to live here. So that's having an impact on schools, you know, and we may one day have to close down some of our local elementary schools, neighborhood elementary schools because of that. You know, prior to COVID, we had teachers who were commuting one to four hours a day. And so we know that that is not sustainable both for their their mental well-being, but also just for our environment. So if we care about schools and maintaining them, We need to care about housing. You know, we have about 313 unhoused people living either in RVs or on our streets. So if we care about addressing homelessness, it's not enough just to provide services. You know, we need to take a housing first approach. Housing enables us to actually serve these folks and get them either the the mental health or substance abuse um, treatment that they need. It helps them um, secure and maintain um, a job that helps provide for their life here. So housing is sort of an indispensable missing component of our efforts on homelessness. And it even, it even impacts public safety, right? One of the things I love about Palo Alto is we have hundreds of ESV volunteers, emergency service volunteers, and that's amazing that we all came together to do that, right? But we have firefighters who live past Sacramento because they can't afford to live here. So if you're someone who is one of these ESV volunteers or you care about public safety or any of the other issues that I listed or didn't list, those are the reasons why you should care about housing and why we have an obligation and responsibility, not just to the region and to other people, but really to ourselves and to our current community. Great.
1: Thank you. We'll we'll dive definitely into that. Uh, a little bit more in a minute. And I wanna remind folks that uh, are on and listening or watching, uh, make sure you put your questions in the Q&A. Uh, that's where we'll we'll see them, I'll read them off. Derek uh, um, Derek, will keep reminding you in the chat room to do that. And then Stephen and I will do, take, on, take those on in a little bit. But let's go ahead and move to some particular issues. I've asked these same questions to each of the candidates. Um, and we'll start off with uh, talking about what's Im- impacting our country right now in so many ways. Um, and and has you know has uh, flavored a lot of the conversations of Palo Alto Layland city council and other places yeah. around institutional racism and policing um, i just want to give some space for you to talk about where do you you know how do you look at and approach institutional racism uh, as a government official but also then how do you look at policing or you know there's reform defund reallocate abolish and i know our city is moving in a direction and i can talk about what i feel about that but i just want to give you give each candidate some space to talk about institutional racism and then policing in in palo alto
2: yeah i mean as your question as the way that you phrase your question alludes to these are systemic and institutional issues and they're cultural issues as well um you know having listened to some of my um colleagues who are also running for city council it it's clear that they don't quite understand the the magnitude of this issue right a lot of them have indicated that they think it's just a case of a, bad, a few bad apples, which I think kind of misses, misses the point. I mean, certainly we in Paul Alger, we've had incidences where a few select officers have, have done things that are you know, completely unacceptable, right? But we have to acknowledge that it's part of a larger systemic institutional cultural problem as well. And so in order to actually address those things in, in a meaningful way, we need to start with that base base knowledge and that base foundation, right? If you start off with the, the premise that it's only a few bad apples, then the, the options, your willingness to, to adopt more radical and much needed options probably isn't gonna happen, right? So I think it's important that we, we have a, elected officials who understand the historical sociological context in which all of these things are happening so that we can actually address them in a, in a meaningful way. Um, you know, specifically about our police department, you know, these are, you know, I, I know the police chief, he's, he's a very nice fella, you know, and I know that a lot of our officers, you know, sacrifice a lot to to be in public service and, you know, I thank them for, for that, that sacrifice, but, um, you know, as public officials, we're, we're elected, we're appointed to make sure that we're holding everyone accountable to the highest community standards. And I think it's unreasonable to, to expect that any organization, especially our police department is going to just reform itself, right? I mean, that's part of why we have checks and balances, why we have, you know, different reporting structures and why it's incumbent on, you know, whether it's me as a human relations commissioner or me as a city council member for us to step up and, and drive the change that we want to see because it's not going to happen if we wait for our police department to do that, and you know, this this has been an issue that that I've worked on for, for quite a while. I mean, these are not new issues by by any means. I mean, they've been going on for 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 decades, and you know, generations of minorities have have unfortunately you know faced these issues. Um, what is more recent is the public's attention to it and their push to actually get things done. And so, i I'm, I'm, I'm very excited and happy that there's finally that public consciousness around it. And it's forcing our elected officials at the national state and local level to get more serious about it. But, you know, we, 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 we don't have to look very far to say that there was, there was resistance to this change even, even a few years ago, um, you know, on the Human Relations Commission about two years ago, I was, um, the police department came to us and asked us to represent their body camera policy um, and I, I was unwilling to do that then because I knew that the, you know, these are ongoing issues and I wanted to involve the public in a larger discussion on police transparency, accountability, and reform. And, you know, just two years ago, that notion that we would not rubber stamp something that, that I wanted to have that larger discussion was seen as, as controversial. Right. And there were members on my commission and members of the current council who didn't like that I was doing that. Doing that, you know, I was doing it in a very polite way, but you know, in a way that was, you know, recognizing the the change that we needed. But folks were like, "What are you doing, Stephen?" And you know, that that's in part one of the reasons why they got rid of my seat on the Human Relations Commission was because I was working on these issues um, at a time when our council wasn't first to actually confront them. Right? There wasn't the public outrage for them to confront it. Um, so there's a lot that we need to do. Um, both in the police department and, um, you know, in all of our institutions, you know, specifically about police, police reform, you know, I think we, we, we dramatically need to reimagine what public safety means. It, for me, it's not just about how large our police force is, but it, it means how much are we investing in low-income communities? How much are we investing in minority communities? Public safety is more than just sort of being reactionary to it. It's about all of the community programs, all of these social services that we choose to fund or not to fund, right? In order to address some of the root causes of either inequality or of crime itself, right? And so I think for too long, we've only focused on the police department as sort of at the end of the pipeline, as opposed to all of the investments we should be making early in the pipeline to address these issues in a uh, more effective and cost efficient way. And so, you know, I don't use the term defund, but a lot of the people who, who use that term when we talk about reallocating money or reallocating responsibilities, that's what a lot of us are actually talking about in terms of how do we invest more earlier in the pipeline so that we're we are being proactive as opposed to merely reactive. Um, yeah. So that's a little yeah. bit about the issue. Yeah, I, I'm, sure we, yeah. on, we'll I'm sure we could go on. Yeah, I'm
1: sure we could We could do a whole. Yeah, we could do a series. <laughs> I mean, uh-huh. I, I I think you know, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of eight can't wait because I think it it you know we've seen in police departments across the country that you know my my previous hometown, San Francisco, is an eight can't wait place. Minneapolis was a six of eight, um, and yeah. I you know and I I would agree with you as well. You know, I've watched you know asking such an institution to reform itself really it's a you know none of us really can do that really well right you can't if i'm if i have core things going on i can't just fix them myself i need some
2: i outside. mean it's human nature like we're not going to change ourselves right we right other people. yeah
1: i like the way i do things and so that's why <laughs> i do them right so uh but so i totally uh, tw- with you on that. i think one of the things i find really interesting that i that I, I my expectations about Palato are so high is that Kind of what you went, you were talking about before, is this sense of innovation and entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. and and we're a small town, so it feels like we could try stuff here.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: there's like we we could be this laboratory, and because our hearts, minds, spirits are kind of in that innovative space anyway, transferring that to what it looks like for public safety. I mean, what does that yeah. look like? And um, I just think there's so much potential, unlike, you know, a San Francisco or a San Jose, where the, the scale is just so big, you know, yeah. it's hard to be experimenting. But, you know, I, I just think there's so much potential for what could be done here. I, I, so curious Well, let me talk that. about
2: the ACANT weight first real quick. and then Go for it. Yep. About the laboratories. You know, I think, you know, the HRC held quite a few meetings where we talked about ACANT weight. And I think most of us, I think all of us agree that it was sort of what I call a drop in a bucket measure. Yeah. Right We certainly need much more dramatic reform, but this is you know consent uh, there seemed to be some consensus around that we should do this, but it's it's necessary but nowhere near sufficient right but it but it was illustrative of some of the issues that we see in this town where yeah, it's a drop in the bucket, but we saw so much resistance from our police chief and from our police department, right which speaks to the institutional and systemic changes we need. As opposed to it just being a few, few bad apples, right? If that right. was really the case, then they would have been on board with these reforms. Did that um, surprise you? It, it, it surprised me and it didn't surprise me. Ha- you know, having worked with the police department, I sort of have, have come to understand that they are going to be resistant to change. But I'm always going to give people the benefit of the doubt whenever we start something new.
1: Sure.
2: But it was interesting because when we started talking about 8 Can't Wait, you know, the police department put up their website which talked about you know, the, the, the eight factors and the ones that they were complying with. But when you took a deep look into what they were saying, it really just did not add up. Like in terms of trail codes, they said that they had satisfied that, that particular criteria fully, But you know, as a lawyer, I'm, I'm used to sort of redlining <laughs> what someone says, what the policy says versus like the eight can't wait model policy. And just doing that simple red line, you could tell that there, there were strategies and tactics that were missing. There, right? So they were claiming credit for a, a, one of the eight factors that they had not fully met, right? And, and again, it's, it goes back to the culture of leadership in this community where there's, there's a hesitation to, to question authority, to question staff. Um, there's almost too much deference to staff. And so when things don't add up, our elected leaders don't call them out about it, or when they're not able to get the information that they need to make decisions they end up being stuck, right? And part of the reason why I'm running is because I think we need bold, progressive, responsive leaders, people who are, you know, I'm always polite, but I'm not going to be someone who, who rolls over,
0: right? I'm a- All around the world, poverty is stealing choices from kids. It's time to give those choices back. Introducing Chosen, World Vision's new invitation to sponsorship. For the first time, kids have the power to choose their own sponsors. Now the choice is theirs. The choice to take hold of their future. And even the choice to step into a life-changing relationship with you. Learn more at worldvision.org slash chosen. When you have a problem, Fox 12 gets you answers. The violence
1: continues. When crime hits too close to home, we want to make sure your voice is heard.
0: We're listening and ready to confront your problems head on.
1: How can Fox 12 help you? Tell us at kptv.com.
2: They use my brain. I'm going to use my heart. I'm going to use my training as a lawyer to ask good questions, to figure out, um, you know, when staff says no to something, I'm going to do the heavy lifting and do the work of, well, why are you saying no? Uh, give me the five reasons why you're saying no. Maybe four of them don't really have any, you know, credibility to them. Let's focus on the one credible reason why you're saying no and figure out a way to get to yes, right? And I think we need leaders who are going to do that work and who are going to stand up for our community and for the people who live in this community and not just defer to an unelected staff who, quite frankly, is, is, is really running the show right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on or a <laughs> webinar on that too. From what I'm hearing from everybody, so but let's move on. Let's go on to. We uh, want yeah. to talk about housing. Uh, so you started to talk about housing a little bit before. Love, uh, thank you for that perspective. So let's let's just talk. Well, so you know, folks, just throw out right. We need more affordable housing. We need more dense housing. We need you know housing crisis. Um, how would you approach this with the city around affordable housing and then just even housing density? I mean, all the things that are going on though, just you, you, again, you started on this before, but go ahead and talk a little bit more about it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, we need to get rid of exclusionary zoning and enable the construction of duplexes, triplexes and quadplexes in what have historically been, you know, single family neighborhoods. That's one way to build some of, to meet some of the housing needs that we have but to do so in a way that blends in quite well with those neighborhoods, you know, oftentimes if you do the design well from the street, you would have no idea that you know, a particular structure is a duplex, triplex or quadplex, right? So it's, it's certainly possible. And we've seen cities like Portland who have gotten rid of single family neighborhoods um, in favor of slightly more density, right? So that's one thing we can certainly do um, in our single family neighborhoods. But I think we also need to reduce the barriers to building dense housing along transit corridors and in job centers. So that means El Camino, it means university, it means CalAD, it means in a research park. And we really need to examine, re-examine our height limits, our parking requirements, because some of those things may be making it more difficult for these projects to actually pencil out and to actually do. Um, So those are some things we need to do. Um, you know, in terms of funding, how do we fund or subsidize housing, right? There's this huge debate about that. And some of the the conventional wisdom is that we need office to fund that housing. Um, I, I don't think I, I quite buy that argument. I think it's one way you do it. But given that we have a three to one jobs to housing imbalance already, it would seem to me that even if we you know, allow that to happen, we'd still be digging ourselves into a deep hole, deeper hole. Um, we might be digging it slightly slower, right, depending on how we mm-hmm. do the ratio. But for me, my sense is we need to focus on building housing, and not add to the problem by building more commercial office space, mm-hmm. which, which I mean, which means that we need to find alternative ways to actually fund or bring down the costs of these housing developments. And I think that there are some good ways to do it. Um, And I've been um, a big proponent of a business tax, a business tax on larger and still Mm -hmm. profitable companies. You know, We're not talking about the mom and pop or small businesses who are struggling right now, but really the the larger corporations who are, are still doing quite well and who are actually making more money during COVID and asking them to step up and pay their fair share and invest in the needs of their community that they benefit from. And that includes housing. You know, that was something that I worked on with Pat Burt prior to COVID-19. And I'm convinced even uh, during COVID-19 that we need to put that on on the ballot um, because we're we're having to cut a lot of things from our budget while all all of these big companies aren't paying their fair share. So that's one way that we can fund affordable housing is a a business tax on larger, still profitable businesses, depending on how we structure it, who we include, who we exclude, do we do it by the square footage? Do we do it by employees? Do we do it based on revenue or payroll? Lots of different ways that we can structure it in a very progressive fashion. Depending on how we do that, we could generate between 10 and $50 million a year, which would Right. I mean, we, we could spend some of that or all of that on housing and that would go quite a long way. Um, we could also spend on, on other things. But in, in, another idea that I had, which may be of particular interest to you is, you know I've been speaking with some of the faith-based communities here in Palo Alto and we're blessed with so many faith-based communities who have quite a bit of land. Um, and I know, um, you know one of my former colleagues on the HRC, uh, Reverend Coloma Smith, he had looked a couple of years ago into adding some housing potentially on, on, on his church's site, right? Because it aligns with his faith and with the yeah. the mission, right, of, of his congregation. But they just weren't able to to make it work. And I think we need to look at how do we leverage land that is owned either by faith-based communities or, you know, the more common approach, own, land owned by government, right? We have Supervisor Joe smith doing that with land near California Avenue where they took county office space and now they're using it to develop um, affordable housing for teachers, right? And so when you own the land already, it, it brings down, you know, you get rid of the land acquisition costs. So I'd like to do that not only with government owned land, you know, especially at Coverly and other locations, but with faith-based communities, to any faith-based community who says we have this land, we have an interest in doing affordable housing and making this part of our mission. Anyone who says that, the city should, should meet them more than halfway and do the heavy lifting, mm-hmm you do the zoning to enable housing there, but also find the developer, find the money to make it work, right? I mean, faith-based communities, you all do such great work already and you're so busy, right? And you don't have the time or expertise or money to make that happen. But if you come to me and say, hey, Steven, we'd like to consider doing something here. That's all you should really have to do as a faith-based community. And I think that's one way that we can leverage all of the amazing faith-based communities um, in our area to help address
1: Housing um, yeah, good well, I, I do want to get faith based. let me go back to um, i know there 's this conversation about business tax and all those kind of things, so the, you know the, oppos- the those who would not be in favor of that would say, well you know, then we're making Palo Alto this place where people don't want to have their businesses. And that, that was in San Francisco. People said that all the time. And I'm kind of like, they're still going to come to San Francisco.
2: Yeah, but, exactly. I mean,
1: what right, right, so what, like, is that the same here? I mean, will people still come? Or are they going to like, uh, Palo Alto, now it costs us too much? I mean, that's the argument, right? Against it is, we're yeah. going to price businesses out.
2: Well, so I know that San Francisco, I think they charge somewhere around $1,200 per employee once you add everything up. When when me and Pat Bird and others were considering doing a business tax in Palo Alto, we weren't even thinking about coming anywhere near close to twelve hundred dollars per employee. We were thinking more like three hundred, four hundred dollars per employee, which is like a third of right. what they do in San Francisco. And you know, San Francisco model is a very illustrative way right? because it shows that you can ask companies to step up and make an investment without it necessarily, you know, forcing all of them out. Right. And I think Palo Alto while different, is very well positioned to make that case, right? We have a very desirable, you know, on your mailing address, everyone wants that Palo Alto address, right? (laughs) Right. Um, So more than any other city on the peninsula or on the South Bay, we have that going for us. We have Stanford University. So all of the synergies there of being near this major research university, being near where a lot of these employees are, and having that world-renowned name, I think, enables us to, to, to actually go out and say, hey, we're going to ask you for a little bit more investment, not necessarily what San Francisco does, but ask you for a little bit more. So the, the, the notion that we would be you know, repelling businesses because of this, I don't think would actually happen. I don't think it actually pans out when you get really deep into the weeds of it. Yeah,
1: yeah, great, thank you. Well, let's talk about, you start, okay, go for you it. Know,
2: b- yep. Businesses are starting to realize that they need to invest more, right? I mean, they are seeing the impacts of our inaction on housing. Right. Right. right? And, and again, no one's going to want to pay taxes unless they're required to do so. Right. That's just human nature. Right. I hate paying taxes, but that's the responsibility I have as someone with my job and with my privilege. And so, you know, it's. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I'm not yeah. going to pay more just because I think. Just because. Know, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, so you already touched on faith-based communities and and what can happen and, and all of, the, of that. And I know there's been a lot of conversations by leaders and members for years about housing on faith-based community sites. But um, are there other ways you think the faith-based community can be active or um, in, in the future and, and who Palo Alto is becoming? Well, you
2: know, um sort of related to housing on the issue of homelessness. why right? I know that the faith-based community has really stepped up and shown a willingness to allow some vehicles in their parking lots, which I think is fantastic. Um, but it hasn't quite happened yet because, again, the city has not been a good partner to our faith-based communities. I think faith-based communities, they, they have the, the passion, they have the people um, to, to want to help Address some of these community and citywide issues. So, for me, it's not so much asking faith-based communities to step up because they're already stepping up, right? And they're all they're waiting and willing to do this work. It's just a matter of whether our city government is properly leveraging that time, that expertise, that you know, those people power to actually get it done. Um, you know, whether it's our city or in our day jobs, so oftentimes it's easy to get busy with what we're focused on that we don't loop in other people who might be able to help us do more with less, if that makes sense, right? Like if you're at a startup and you're so busy doing your day job, but you don't get around to actually hiring the people that you know you need to hire to help you do it, it, it's just this vicious cycle, right? Whereas you just need to tell yourself like, hey, we need to actually spend some time to go out and hire someone, get them in so that they give us more bandwidth. And the Mm -hmm. same dynamic needs to happen at our city level where whether it's on homelessness or gender equity, we have all of these groups, all of these residents, all of these experts who are waiting to step up and do the work and provide that leverage. But our council and our city just has not stepped up to, to, to really say like, yes, we would love your help. Right. Great. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Thanks.
1: Okay. So let's say you get elected and then you serve your two terms uh, and, and the council is, uh, They've adopted the future of Palo Alto, according to Stephen Lee uh, manifesto, and they're all in. Fully yeah. in. What, what does uh, what does what does Palo Alto look like in five or ten years? What are we?
2: Who are who are we? And who are we becoming? Well, you know certainly I think you know Palo Alto right now it's a great place to raise a family if you are of a certain class, right? Like you know I I, I I'm a renter myself, but I, I am a relatively privileged renter. I I make enough money in my day job as a lawyer to actually afford rent here. But it increasingly it's becoming difficult for, for, for a lot of people in our community to actually stay here and to, to, to enjoy all of the great things about this community. So I want Palo Alto to be, you know, in, in eight years, a place where it's a great place to raise a family, but a great place to raise a family no matter who you are, what your job may be, or what your particular needs may be. Right? Like one of the things that I've worked on as a human relations commissioner is working to make our public facilities and our recreational programs more accessible to our special needs families and to families with all, all abilities, right? We have this amazing recreational program if you have the ability to actually participate. Yeah. So in that specific example, I'd like us to be a community where it's, we have these great recreational opportunities, but they're accessible and usable regardless of what your abilities may be, right? And so I, I want to bring all of the great things we are as a community to a, a larger swath of our community. Um, you know, the people who work here, the people who, who, who serve us. Um, yeah, I want us to be a, a, a great place to raise a family for, for everyone, mm-hmm. ultimately. Well, and, I, and I want, you know, I want people okay. like your daughter, who grew up here to be actually, to be able to actually come back here <laughs> um, to live here as an adult, to raise our own family here. I hear so oftentimes from 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 young people who grew up here that they are just priced out, even if they do everything right, even if they go to Stanford, even if they go to Berkeley and they get a good job, our inaction on housing ha- have made it nearly impossible for folks to return home, right? We hear it from our mayor, right? He's one of what, four or five kids. He's the only yeah. kid, one of his siblings who lives here. I heard that from Corey Wolbach. I've heard it from so many folks, and it's an issue that our young people are concerned about. I, I, I met with some of our Interact Club students, and they are very concerned about how expensive it's getting and whether they'll be able to afford to, to live here, right? And we have seniors who are being priced out, right? They're not able to move to a smaller unit close to services because we haven't built those housing options for them. And so they're either left living in a house that they can't manage, isolated from caregivers, or having to relocate out of the outside the community that they raise their families in.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. So I want us yeah. to be a community that that rises to meet this challenge in in, in in a way that we just haven't been. I mean, we've seen neighboring communities do it, whether it's Mountain View or Redwood City, they have really been more proactive, more progressive, more responsive to all of the needs of their community. Mm-hmm. So we know that it's possible to do it. Um, I mean, earlier you were, you were talking about how Palo Alto has this opportunity to be a, a fantastic laboratory to test out new programs, new ideas. And I, I would hope that that would be the eventual goal, but in order to get there, we have a lot of catching up to do. There are so many mm-hmm. different issues. There are a lot of good examples for us to model ourselves after in either neighboring cities, nearby across the Bay Area or in, in, across this country So we don't always have to reinvent the wheel. We need to do a little bit of catching up. And then once we do that, once we are actually caught up, I would hope that we are this place where we harness the energy and innovation of our people to really be that laboratory as you were saying earlier.
1: Great. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So we're going to move on to some questions from okay. uh, folks who are watching. Uh, so we have, feel free to add more to but we have our first question is from Leif Erickson. Yeah. So I'm going to and un- read it for people who are watching this later. Thank you, Stephen, for your service on the human relations commission and your creative outreach on race, gender, and youth issues. Thinking about last spring's council budget hearings when teen services were facing total cuts how would you as a council member balance budget allocations for community services like teen services and capital projects?
2: Yeah, definitely. I, I think our council definitely got this last budget wrong um, in a number of ways. First of all, you know, as we talked earlier, when we are in tough budgetary times, it's not just a matter of what do we cut, but we also need to examine, are we tapping all of the potential revenue sources that we can? Right? And so this is why I I go back to the idea of a business act so oftentimes, right? We, we as a city had to make $40 million worth of cuts. Some of that could have been mitigated. Some of those programs could have been saved had we had the foresight to ask our larger businesses who are making a lot of money right now to step up and pay their fair share. Right? So that's the first place I would start is, are we asking those who who are doing well, are, are they pitching in their fair share? Looking at, at what to cut, right, I, I don't think our council looked enough at our at delaying some of our capital improvement projects, right? So whether it's things like the public safety building or parking garages or, or fire stations. And part of that again goes back to the deference to staff that we talked about earlier, right? Hmm. Councilmember Tanaka, to his credit, wanted to take a, a deeper look at delaying some of these what I would call nice to have capital projects. But the staff was like, oh, well, we really don't want to do it. Just give us a number that you want to cut and we'll come back with something, right? And and that's a testament to how how weak our council is in terms of standing up to to our staff leadership and really controlling its own agenda and the trajectory of our community, right? We need council members who are going to say, no, this is a priority to us. We want to take a, a deeper look at our capital project. Uh, you know, former mayor Pat Burt wrote an op-ed about this very topic, and he mentioned that you know some of the revenue sources that were um, that we rely on—they were never intent. The, the capital projects were never intended to to supplant community services or community projects, right? It was never anticipated mm-hmm. that during a down economy we would cut programs in order to maintain the schedule for the capital projects, mm-hmm. right? So knowing that, that that was the goal, it, it perplexes me that we, we didn't take a deeper look at, at the capital budget. Um, I think we could have, if we did that, um, the, looked at the capital and looked at revenue, we could have saved a lot of these programs. And it's precisely now during these difficult times that we need to invest in teen and community programs because they serve vulnerable and in need populations, right? Again, it's, it's part of that whole idea of how we need to be proactive and invest early in the pipeline as opposed to merely reactive. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think our council made, made a very, very bad, bad choice with this last budget.
1: Great. Thank you. And I know that uh, a lot of community organizing went on to save a lot of that money to, after those decisions were made. And then, and leaf has been an amazing yeah. part of all that work. So another question that people are asking quite a bit is what do you think about the Fry's site?
2: Yeah, I mean that, that, um, the NVCAP, you know, the North Ventura um, area plan that presents us with a unique once in a lifetime opportunity to get serious about housing. I mean, it's near this transit corridor. So I, I imagine a very dense, compact and, and vibrant um, site where we can build housing of different types. We can add retail that serves that local community. Um, but really it, it's, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to get serious about housing. If, if we don't do serious housing at, at the Fry site, it's not gonna send a good message to the state or to the region about our commitment to housing. And if we fail to, fail to do it, they, they may step in and do it for us and, build, mm-hmm. and require us to build housing in, in, in less than ideal locations. So this is an opportunity for us to, to build a, a vibrant site for that neighborhood while addressing our city's larger housing housing needs. Great.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, we're almost at, we're our hours going by fast. Oh wow. And, that's uh, really fast. <laughs> I love So um so as we close out, you, any questions for me?
2: I mean, what what keeps you up at night? What 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 do you hear <laughs> from your congregation in terms of what people are most concerned about in our
1: community? Um Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I think um right now there's a lot of uh, i would say a lot of mental health questions just the yeah. pandemic and seniors and folks who um are you know are in senior communities but those are so locked down now that they're isolated within a community that they went to because they needed more community so it's kind of this really difficult piece mm. i think that that's a that's a big question for for us that um um i think our Our church in particular is is committed to social justice and um having conversations about policing housing uh, you know all of the things that you've kind of talked about and you know this church has had a history of kind of uh being a pain but in a good way right the good trouble kind of thing yes <laughs> and i think that, that i i that's the reason that I accepted the the call to come here was that um you know a place that's really committed to that is difficult to find. So I'm not sure it keeps me up as much as it it energizes me. I mean, this is a time where, um, you know, our congregation has, um, you know, the things that we've had to adapt and change during this time has actually, I think, energized many of us about the future sure. and what we could be as a church and, and all that. So um, you know, I I do worry about I worry about our young people here. I have a senior in high school, and mm. uh, you know, coming from uh, this liberal hippie small private school in San Francisco to gun, <laughs> right, it's this yeah, it's whiplash. Yeah, yeah, And I and I think you know, it's it's interesting. I think there's you know questions about how we do education and all those kind of things. So I um, yeah, I, my my old my, the, I always joke the the weirdest thing about moving to Palo Alto is. When we go out and walk, like the lack of street lighting, like all of our whole family was always like, "It's so yeah. dark here when we walk." <laughs> so I have like multiple lights on all the time, and I look like a total dad. And all yeah, things. but that, I mean, that's not something to fix. I know that that's intentional.
2: Well, I mean, let me let me talk to you some of those points. Yeah. You know, on mental health, you know, um, our commission, the commission that I served on, we were responsible for some of the funding for mental health services, and I very much am of the opinion that mental health, whether it's youth or adult mental health, that is a responsibility that our city certainly shares with our school district. Uh, but mm-hmm. not everyone, you know, not all of my colleagues believe that. Some of them think that it's purely a school district issue that it, it as a social mm-hmm. service, it's something that only our county should do. And I fought pretty hard to, to maintain funding and, and in some cases to actually increase funding for mental health. And it, it wasn't tough. It, it wasn't easy, rather. I got a lot of criticism from it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, young people, they are members of our community too, right? Yeah, they may, well, they used to be on campus, right? right <laughs> you know, they, right. now they're in their homes, but they are members of our community just like anyone else. And so we have a shared responsibility to provide them these services that they, they need as well. Um, and too often times, you know, you, you have people who, who don't have that, that social justice lens to it, they, they think, they divide up these issues as, oh, that's purely a school district issue, or this is purely a city issue. But I think all of us realize that these issues, they're so inextricably linked, right? And, and that goes back to what I was saying about housing, but on any number of issues, they're linked. And each of each of the jurisdictions have a role to play in it, right? Both right. at the local level, state and federal, they all interact with each other. And so as we are thinking about you know, these issues, Um, you know, we we may think of something as as only a national issue or something as a local issue, but really they they intersect in so many ways. And so it's important that not only do we elect progressive and democratic leaders, you know, at the national level, White homes winning back the White House, winning back the Senate, but we also need to elect progressive Democrats here at the local level because those efforts intersect and they, they need to complement each other. And if right. you elect people who don't share those values and who are making policies at the local level, especially around housing decisions, those, those efforts are going to counteract all of the, the, the work that we are doing at the national level. So I, I definitely think we need to reinvest it in mental health. Um, you know, I, I'm very thankful for the work that your church is doing in terms of social justice. I mean, I just want people to know that we, we, social justice isn't just for other people. We all benefit from the work that we are doing, right? I mean, we are only as good as sort of our most vulnerable or in the population. So we have a a self-interest for ourselves to get serious about all these social justice issues and social justice weaves itself in every issue we do. Um, You know, one one idea that I I really like, San Jose, they adopted what's called an equity pledge, right? So anytime they, they look at the budget, anytime they make a policy decision, they're actually going to have an analysis of how the potential um, choices furthers equity or moves us further away from equity like right p- acknowledging that all of these issues even if it's just things like you know infrastructure how do they how do they actually is acknowledging that they actually impact equity and being more thoughtful about considering those impacts even when it's not most obvious
1: thing right right so. all right i gotta stop you there we're gonna okay. run out of time we gotta make sure get yeah, instagram tv only takes up to an hour quickly what are you reading what are you watching what are you listening to
2: i'm me watching the rest ring and parks and rec with my my roommates it's an optimistic progressive show, um, <laughs> and i think we need a
1: little bit of that right now yeah are you listening to anything in particular
2: um i tend to listen to a lot of K- Katy perry songs because they're very uplifting my, my team kind of crushes my my musical taste, but I find them uplifting and we need
1: uplifting music right now. That's good. That's awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, that's great. So um, for those of you that are watching, thank you for joining us today. Remember, remember you can watch or listen to all the webinars. They will all be posted by this weekend uh, and by going to F- uh, fpresspa.org you can connect stevens on facebook and his, his website as well as on instagram at steven for Council and twitter at Stephen lee pa as always you can connect with me on all the social media platforms at at b reyes chow uh, please be sure to follow and connect to first presbyterian church on twitter instagram and facebook at fpc palo alto subscribe to our youtube channel by searching for First Presbyterian Church at Palo Alto. Thanks to Derek Kikuchi for helping out again through this whole series. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Stephen, for sitting down with me today.
2: Thank you very much. Everyone have a great weekend.
1: All right, again, thanks for joining us. We're taking a break next week now that we're done with this series, but we return in October. Uh, we're gonna do uh, interviews and webcasts on voting, environmental racism, and policing and abolition. We'll be moving an hour earlier and only once a week. So save Wednesdays at noon, starting in October, uh, for our, our ongoing webinar series. So until then, uh, have a great weekend and thanks for being with us. BRC and friends was produced, written, recorded, and edited by Bruce Reyes Chow with zero help from his dog Vespa. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to BRC and friends wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please follow, like, tag, and share on all the platforms via BRC,
0: Learn more at worldvision.org slash chosen. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Is your car no longer stopping like it used to? Don't miss out on spring brake deals at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Our professional parts people will help you find the brake parts and supplies you need to do the job right the first time. You'll find great deals on brake pads and rotors, fluids, degreasers, and more. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com.
2: Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts